0: I'm Bill
1: Moyers. It's good to have your ear.
0: Let's look at at what U.S. military intervention in Iraq has achieved, in Afghanistan has achieved, in Somalia has achieved, in Lebanon has achieved, in Libya has achieved. I mean, ask ourselves a very simple question: Is the region becoming more stable? Is it becoming more democratic? Are we alleviating, reducing the prevalence of anti-Americanism? I mean, if the answer is yes, then let's keep trying. But if the answer to those questions is no, then maybe it's time for us to recognize that this larger military project is failing and is not going to succeed simply by trying harder.
1: Thanks for joining us. They said Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction that could turn the smoking gun into a mushroom cloud, and they were wrong. They said Iraq had ties to al Qaeda, and they were wrong. They said the war would be a cakewalk, and they were wrong. Over and again, they were wrong. Yet 11 years, thousands of lives, millions of refugees, and trillions of dollars later, the very same armchair warriors in Washington who from the safety of their beltway bunkers call for invading Baghdad are demanding once again that America plunge into the sectarian wars of the Middle East. A chorus of kindred voices fills the echo chamber, the same old faces, the same old arguments, never acknowledging the phony premises and fraudulent intelligence that led to disaster and chaos in the first place. A headline at the website Think Progress sums it up. The people who broke Iraq have a lot of ideas about fixing it now. Among the most celebrated of these hawks is Robert Kagan, senior fellow with the Brookings Institution, a darling of the neocons. He's been a foreign policy advisor to John McCain, Mitt Romney and Hillary Clinton. In 2002, he and William Crystal wrote that for the war on terrorism to succeed, Saddam Hussein must be removed. When George W. Bush set out to do just that, Kagan cheered him on and then in 2006 called for a surge in American troop levels to prevent Iraq's collapse. Now, Robert Kagan is stirring controversy again with this lengthy article in the New Republic, Superpowers Don't Get to Retire, What Our Tired Country Still Owes the World. He calls for America to return to muscular global activism. Kagan's much-discussed article brought a sharp repost from another scholar and historian who sees the world and America's role differently. Andrew Bacevich has seen the horrors of war too closely to advocate more of the same policies that failed in Vietnam and Iraq. A graduate of West Point with 23 years in the military, including time in Vietnam, he teaches history at Boston University, writes best-selling books on foreign policy, and articles and essays in journals. Both liberal and conservative, like this critique of Kagan in Commonweal magazine titled The Duplicity of the Ideologues. Welcome back. Thank you very much. So, what do you mean, the duplicity of ideologues? Well, Kagan's essay, which does deserve
0: to be read simply because of Kagan's stature in Washington, uh, gives us a, a falsified, sanitized, and in some respects illusory uh, account of recent American history. How so? Well uh, his notion of American history particularly since uh, 1945 uh, is one that we might term a, an extended liberation narrative uh, where the United States devoted itself in the wake of World War II to promoting liberal values, democracy everywhere, uh, fighting against evildoers uh, and he concludes that uh, this success is being squandered uh, by uh, Barack Obama uh, and, and those yeah. who are unwilling to continue this crusade. Now that narrative is only sustainable if you leave a lot of important facts out or if you uh, distort those facts. So we get no mention of overthrowing Mossadegh uh, in Iran in 1953. We get no, no mention of the CIA overthrowing uh, the uh, president of Guatemala. Uh, we get virtually no mention of the Vietnam War, which he dismisses as sort of an unfortunate uh, incident of no particular significance. And, and perhaps most egregiously, he, he utterly ignores uh, the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, which he served as a cheerleader for, and which to a very large extent account for the problem that we're dealing with today in the greater Middle East. Th-
1: this week, one of his allies, former Vice President. Dick Cheney and his daughter Elizabeth wrote a long essay in the Wall Street Journal. They say, Rarely has a U.S. president been so wrong about so much at the expense of so many, too many times to count. Mr. Obama has told us he is ending the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan as though wishing made it so. His rhetoric has now come crashing into reality. Watching the black-clad ISIS jihadists take territory once secured by American blood is final proof, if any were needed. That America's enemies are not decimated, they are emboldened and on the march.
0: Well, I'd say rarely has a major American newspaper published an op-ed that was so thoroughly uh, shameless. Uh, again, uh, what is the cause? What what was the catalyst of the instability that racks uh, Iraq today? The simple answer is the one that Cheney and his daughter uh, don't want to mention the unnecessary, misguided, and frankly immoral war launched by the United States in 2003. We destabilized Iraq. In many respects, we destabilized the larger region. uh, And the misfortune of Barack Obama is that he inherited this catastrophe created by the previous administration.
1: Even Cheney once thought that it would be a serious mistake to occupy Baghdad. This is Dick Cheney in 1994, reflecting on the first Iraq War uh, when he was Secretary of Defense under George H.W. Bush.
2: Do you think that U.S. or U.N. forces should have moved into Baghdad? No. Why not? Because if we'd gone to Baghdad, we would have been all alone. There wouldn't have been anybody else with us. It would have been a U.S. occupation of Iraq. None of the Arab forces that were willing to fight with us in Kuwait were willing to invade Iraq. Uh, Once you got to Iraq and took it over and took down Saddam
1: Hussein's government, then what are you going to put in its place? That's a very volatile part of the world, and and if you take down the central government in Iraq, you can easily end up seeing pieces of Iraq fly off, Uh, part of it uh, the Syrians would like to have to the west, Uh, part of eastern Iraq uh, the Iranians would like to claim, fought over for eight years. In the north, you've got the Kurds, and if the Kurds spin loose and join with the Kurds in Turkey, then you threaten the territorial integrity of Turkey. It's It's a
2: quagmire.
0: I think the the contrast between what Cheney said in 1994 and what he says 20 years later is actually uh, very illustrative of what passes for foreign policy debate today is just nakedly partisan. Uh, back in 1994 he was in the business of defending George Herbert Walker Bush. Now he's in the business of defending George W. Bush, but basically uh, attacks Barack Obama Blaming Obama for uh, any difficulties that we're having. And the point about naked partisanship, I think, really applies on a somewhat larger stage. When you look at the people who get invited on the Sunday talk shows or whose op eds appear in the New York Times or in the Washington Post or other prominent organs of opinion, they are people who are participating in this partisan debate. There's very little effort to look beyond the Bush versus Obama, Republican versus Democrat, to try to understand the the larger forces in play that have brought us to where we are today and the, the understanding of which could then make it possible for us to think somewhat more creatively about policy than simply having an argument about whether we should attack with drones or attack with manned aircraft.
1: What are those larger forces at work? Because Robert Kagan says, quote, world order shows signs of cracking and perhaps even collapsing, and that these changes signal a transition into a different world order, which the United States should attempt to lead.
0: When Kagan uses phrases like world order, uh, he's describing something that never really existed except in his own imagination. But again, the point is worth reflecting on. Uh, Kagan believes many people in Washington believe that the United States shapes the global order, uh, that there is an order for which we alone are responsible. Where does this kind of thinking come from? I mean, I, I, think, I think in many respects what we see here is the contemporary expression of the whole notion of American exceptionalism, that, that, that we are chosen, we are called upon, called upon by God, called upon by providence to somehow uh, transform the world and remake it in our own image. Now, Robert Kagan wouldn't state it as uh, bluntly as, as I just did. But that is the kind of thinking uh, that I think makes it very difficult for us to have a genuine and serious foreign policy uh, debate.
1: So the other side would would argue, as they are, that we well, look at the beheadings, the murders, the, the brutality and cruelty that the... Uh, Uh, radical Islamists are inflicting upon their adversaries and the people of Iraq. Isn't that an evil to which we are the only ones can respond?
0: Well, first of all, it is an evil to which we contributed by our folly in invading Iraq back in 2003. There was no al-Qaeda in Iraq uh, under the previous order. Uh, That would be the first point. And the, the second point, I think, would be let's be practical let's be pragmatic. If indeed we are called upon to act, let us frame our actions in ways that actually will yield some positive outcome. I'm personally not persuaded that further military action in Iraq is actually going to produce an outcome more favorable than the last one. If what we have here on our hands in Iraq, in Syria, uh, elsewhere in in the Middle East is a humanitarian catastrophe, then, then let us become serious about asking ourselves, what is the appropriate response? What, what can the richest and most powerful country in the world do to alleviate the suffering of innocent people who are caught up in this violence? And my answer to that question is not airstrikes. Uh, my answer to that question is, well, if indeed we have a moral responsibility to come to the aid of suffering Iraqis and Syrians, then we better start opening up our wallets to be far more generous and forthcoming in, in providing assistance that
1: people need. What form would that assistance take given the hostilities on the ground there and the murderous, uh, internecine, tribal, sectarian conflicts going on there? How do we help people who are at this moment suffering as a consequence, as you have indicated earlier, of policies we pursued?
0: people flee these conflict zones, they flee into neighboring countries where they end up in in pretty squalid refugee camps, mostly run by the United Nations. Let's double, triple, quadruple the support that we provide to maintain those refugee camps, or let's go beyond that. Let us welcome at least some number of them to America, where they will have safety and freedom. I mean, if we're serious about caring about the well-being of these people, That's one practical way to respond to
1: their plight. So do we conclude from that that you don't believe there is anything practical we can do on the ground? Is the only option murderous genocide and optimum paralysis?
0: We have been engaged in the Islamic world at least since 1980 in a military project based on the assumption that the adroit use of American hard power can somehow pacify or fix this part of the world. We can, we can now examine more than three decades of this effort. Let's, let's look at, at what U.S. military intervention in Iraq has achieved, in Afghanistan has achieved, in Somalia has achieved, in Lebanon has achieved, in Libya has achieved. I mean, ask ourselves a very simple question. Is the region becoming more stable? Is it becoming more democratic? Are we alleviating, reducing the prevalence of anti-Americanism? I mean, if the answer is yes, then let's keep trying. But if the answer to those questions is no, then maybe it's time for us to recognize that this larger military project is failing and is not going to succeed simply by trying harder. So I guess what I'm trying to say is the events that are unfolding in Iraq at this very moment promote a debate within Washington revolving around the question, what should we do about Iraq? But there is a larger and more important question. And the larger and more important question has to do with the region as a whole, and the actual consequences of U.S. military action over the past 30 years.
1: As you know, Iraq has formally asked the U.S. government to um, launch airstrikes against those jihadist militants. Uh, How do you think that's going to play out? Well, I don't know. Uh, My guess would be that this will
0: uh, substantially increase the pressure on the president to do just that. Uh, And my question would be, If we launch airstrikes, uh, and if the airstrikes don't have a decisive effect in turning the tables on the ground, then what? I mean, this is always, I think, uh, a a concern when you begin a a military operation, uh, that you have some reasonable sense of what you're going to do next if the
1: first gambit doesn't succeed. Many people are saying that Barack Obama is feckless, lacks will, or... Strength uh, and that he's enabling uh, the defeat of our interest in the Middle East by pulling the troops back and by being indifferent to what's happening there now.
0: Well, he's not indifferent. I mean, I, I'm I'm not here to defend uh, the Obama approach to foreign policy, which I think has been uh, mediocre at best. That said, the president has learned some things. I think the most important thing the president learned from his predecessor is that invading and occupying countries in the Islamic world is a pretty dumb idea. It leads to complications and enormous costs. So we, we see him reticent about putting so-called boots on the, on the ground. Uh, that said, uh, the president certainly has not uh, been reluctant uh, to use force in a variety of ways, uh, usually on, on small-scale uh, drone strikes, commando raids, and the like. Where I would fault the president, uh, is that he hasn't been able to go beyond learning the negative lessons of the Bush era to coming up with a positive uh, approach to the Islamic world. Shortly after he was inaugurated, uh, he went to Cairo, gave a famous speech, speech proposed that there was going to be a, a new beginning, turn the page, a new beginning of U.S. relations with the Islamic world. Who who would not endorse that proposition? I mean, I certainly do. But But... It has come to nothing. Uh, the, nobody in the, in the Obama administration, either in the first term or in the present term, as far as I can tell, has been able to figure out how to operationalize this notion of a new relationship between ourselves and the Islamic world. One can give Secretary Kerry credit for trying to restart the uh, peace process between Israel and the Palestinians. Were we able to broker a peace that created a sovereign, coherent, viable Palestinian state that actually could be the one thing we could do that would seriously change the tenor of U.S. relations with the people of the Islamic world. But that effort has failed.
1: What is it about how we go to war? We, we poured blood and treasure into Vietnam and Iraq and wound up with exactly the opposite consequences that we won't it? And we keep repeating, hearing the same arguments and claims that we should do it again.
0: Well, w- war itself is evil. Uh, but, but war is an evil that should command our respect. War is something that we should not take lightly, that we should not discuss frivolously. And I think that that's one of the great failings of our foreign policy establishment. That, that our foreign policy... Our foreign policy establishment does not take war seriously. It, is, it assumes that the creation of precision-guided weapons makes war manageable, removes from war the element of risk and chance that is that are, that are always inherent in warfare. So these are people who, quite frankly, most of them don't know much about war, uh, and, and, and therefore, who discuss war in frivolous
1: ways. And yet there's this still almost religious belief in force as the savior. Well, I think your use of
0: religious terms uh, is, is very, very appropriate here. Because there is a theological, quasi-theological dimension to their thinking related, again, to this notion that we are called, we are, we are chosen, we are the instrument of providence, summoned to transform the world, and therefore empowered right. to use force in ways not permitted to any others. So is it
1: duplicity or self-delusion?
0: I mean, it depends, I think, on who you're, who we are talking about here. Uh, for somebody like Vice President Cheney, berating Barack Obama for somehow uh, surrendering American uh, uh, leadership, and, and in, in the course of doing that, simply ignoring the record of the administration in which he served—that's that's duplicity. That's that's uh, that's malicious partisanship. But I think when you talk about people like Robert Kagan. They believe. They believe what they believe. They subscribe to a, a worldview that, to my mind, is uh, utterly misguided. Uh, but they are genuinely committed to the sort of propositions that that are uh, on display in his his New Republic article. I mean, the, it's just a question of why those propositions uh, continue to be treated seriously when when they should not be.
1: We'll continue this discussion online. Andrew Bacevich, thank you very much for being with me. Thank you. At our website, BillMoyers.com, more with Andrew Bacevich and historian and essayist Eric Alderman on how pundits use the press to keep peddling the same propaganda. That's all at BillMoyers.com. I'll see you there,
2: and I'll see you here next time. Moyers & Company is produced by Public Affairs Television. You can learn more about the team that collaborates to produce the series at BillMoyers.com. Funding is provided by Ann Gumowitz, encouraging the renewal of democracy, Carnegie Corporation of New York, Supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security at carnegie.org. The Ford Foundation, working with visionaries on the front lines of social change worldwide. The Herb Alpert Foundation, supporting organizations whose mission is to promote compassion and creativity in our society. The John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world. More information at MacFound.org. Park Foundation, dedicated to heightening public awareness of critical issues. The Kohlberg Foundation, Barbara G. Fleischman. And by our sole corporate sponsor, Mutual of America, designing customized individual and group retirement products. That's why we're your retirement company.